Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. What happens when an outspoken critic of the technology industry finds herself at the helm of one of the largest messaging apps in the world? Meredith Whitaker made her name as one of the tech industry's strongest internal critics, helping lead the worker uprising at Google, founding an institute to rethink the ethics of AI, and promoting a platform for a real progressive politics and technology. Now she's the president of Signal, the organization that builds and runs the app of the same name, which is known for its serious dedication to privacy. We'll talk with Whitaker about this moment in tech, if privacy still matters, and what she can do to help Signal prosper despite its big tech competition. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This morning, we're joined by the new president of Signal, the messaging platform. Signal has been beloved by activists and serious tech nerds for years back. Back in early 2021, even Elon Musk exhorted his Twitter followers to use the app instead of alternatives like Apple's iMessage or WhatsApp. Now the company's president is the whip-smart Meredith Whitaker, who spent 13 years at Google before rounding into one of the industry's toughest critics, she joins us this morning to talk about privacy and the wild year that tech has had in 2022. And I know from her tweets that she grew up listening to Forum. So an especially big welcome to you, Meredith. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. And indeed, Forum has a, a special place in my heart, having listened to it as a child. Yeah. Um, you know, by way of introduction, let's talk about your time at Google. How did you feel when you first got your job there in the aughts? Well... I got my job right out of college. So I was graduating Berkeley and I was broke and I put my resume on Monster, which for the kids out there was like proto LinkedIn. It is to LinkedIn as like MySpace is to Facebook is to, you know, whatever other social media app. And um, a recruiter from Google contacted me. So I created a Gmail account, replied and then went through this battery of what felt like really absurd interviews, about seven interviews, and then landed a job at Google. But it wasn't, you know, I got there um, because I needed a job, not because I was sort of, you know, had a kind of passion for tech or any real interest in that industry. But it, you know, I I got there. I was very interested in what was happening. Like, why was why was everyone so rich? Why do we get free juice? What, you know, what do we mean when we say organize the world's information? And I would, you know, I just started asking a bunch of kind of quote unquote dumb questions um, and trying to figure out like what is, you know, what is the business model? How do we make money? Um, and that vantage gave me a pretty close perspective to 
the metastasis of the the tech industry from inside Google. So that's you know that's the story of my my youth, really, my early career. Yeah. I mean, Googler at that time, like the noun, the the word that people use to talk mm-hmm. about the person who works at, at Google, it had a lot of meaning for some people. Like it meant a whole bunch of things. Like you were kind of associated with this forward thinking, brilliant company that was also, you know, extremely profitable um, and uh, and powerful. Did you ever associate yourself? Like, did you ever introduce yourself? Like, yeah, I'm a Googler. Or were you, you were outside of that culture? Um. I mean, no, I just don't like the sound of that word. It felt like kind of <laughs> You're like, so I'm I opposed didn't... to it on aesthetic yeah, grounds. Yeah, just formally, it was a little uncomfortable. Um, but I don't, you know, that's not to say that I had sort of a, a clear analysis of the harms of the tech industry from the beginning, right? Like a lot changed, you know, since 2006, right? Like Yahoo was a bigger site than Google by monthly active, you know, usage, right? Like it was a very different landscape the iPhone didn't exist. So this sort of like persistent, always on kind of networked culture didn't exist. It hadn't interpolated our work lives, right? It was just a very, it was a very, very different landscape. And so I do remember at the beginning, this sort of, it was an overwhelming sense of like, we have finally cracked the code to be both ethical and sort of, you know, billionaires, exponentially growing our profits forever. And that was like a that I mean that was a curious dichotomy to me and it was also something where you know it did take me a while to sort of build up an analysis that you know began to you know seek out and be sort of you know reading people who were more skeptical of tech sort of digging into some of the you know surveillance and privacy concerns which you know I would say before 2013 and the Snowden revelations were very kind of marginal. There was like a niche set of people who were sort of referred to as, you know, tinfoil hat folks um, and, you know, but were sort of warning of the potential dangers of the sort of you know growth of, of mass of the mass surveillance tech industry. Um, so, it, you know, I think I, I think kind of keeping this answer a bit short, it took me it took me a while to even figure out what we were doing. Mm-hmm. I had to sort of learn the sort of technical nuts and bolts as I went. Um, and I was also lucky to be situated in, you know, what was called the technical infrastructure department, which is now kind of Google Cloud. But that was, you know, that was where the network engineers were. That was where sort of infrastructure was being built. And that was where a lot of the, what I would say, like kind of the hidden capital behind tech existed. So I saw like, you know, the gritty underside, the like people who have to carry pagers, the guy who has to like drain a disc every, you know, three days or the the site falls over the, you know, the fact that all of this is kept together by human labor, it is all based on sort of, you know, kind of core infrastructural protocols that are often maintained by volunteers, that there is sort of, you know, that it requires extraordinary amounts of money to run and maintain, you know, whether it be energy costs or the costs of sort of, you know, provisioning data centers or, you know, just the guys who have to go in there and, you know, rack and stack the servers. So I was very much in touch with like the material reality of tech and then so, trying to put that in connection to like the hype and the sort of mysticism and the story of like genius and progress was a big part of me kind of figuring out what was happening in the industry overall. Yeah. I mean, last question down this road before mm-hmm. we turn to Signal, but you know, how did you square this kind of famous dictum that uh, was floating around Google at the time, don't be evil as a sort of ethical guide, versus what you saw in those server rooms and with those, you know, uh, guys managing this massive infrastructure and the sort of business that was being built atop of it? Well, you know, I could be sort of cynical about don't be evil, right? Like, I think, you know, it was sort of, it was very, 
engineery shorthand, right? Like the idea that we only need one sort of phrase and that will keep us honest, right? And, you know, at the time, there wasn't really an analysis of like the political economy of tech. And I think we're still developing kind of a sensibility that like maybe what matters about tech just as much as the technology itself is like the business model and the incentives that are driving it. So, you know, I think don't be evil. It was cute. And it actually it served a purpose insofar as people could sort of like point at the sign on the wall that said don't be evil metaphorically when they felt uncomfortable about something. And sort of that was a shorthand for like, maybe we shouldn't do this. So I think it, it did have some value. Um, I think, you know, squaring that with the material reality of tech, the massive resource requirements to run, you know, high availability tech, whether it be the Google sites or, you know, a messaging service. Um, you know, I don't I don't think those are necessarily incommensurate, but I do think, you know, what Google was, what most of the industry is, is sort of a, you know, surveillance-based advertising company, right? Mm -hmm. And so beginning to, like, get the, okay, that's where the money comes from. That's where the money still comes from. And all of the sort of, you know, all of the claims on top of that, whether it be, you know, we're the world's town square or we are, you know, organizing the world's information for public good or, you know, we're bringing access to the masses or whatever it is, is, you know, it may be true in some extent, but it's also a shim on top of, like, what mm -hmm. the core objective function of these companies is, which is, you know, you got to make money somehow because that is what a shareholder corporation does. You have to increase that revenue, increase that growth exponentially over time forever, like the definition of metastasis. And that has to, you know, and that in the current tech ecosystem is as a rule that, you know, the engine of that process is, you know, kind of the surveillance business model. Yeah. So we can wrap whatever we want around that, but ultimately we have to contend with that fact so why or maybe how is signal different than this new this organization you're not the president of well i am so glad you asked alexis because it's different in a number of you know really fundamental ways um one you know i think i'll start not with the technical differences but signal is a nonprofit, right and that means that our incentives are not you know are not driven by our board's expectation of revenue we don't have shareholders in equity that would push us to you know, abandon our mission and our privacy promises. Um, and, you know, it is also going to keep the leadership like me honest. Right. There's no billion dollar exit coming that would tempt us to, you know, sell signals network and sell signals sort of, you know, services to, you know, a large tech company so that we can go live on a yacht in the Bahamas. So we're structured <laughs> at an organizational level. In a polycule in the Bahamas, actually, I think is what's been happening. I'm not even going to respond to that. Honestly, that's yeah. Um, if, if Twitter's still up, you can check there. I'm sure they have better yes. jokes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So there's not. You know, we are structured as an organization at an organizational level to you know keep us laser focused on our mission, and our mission is to provide truly pri a truly private tool for communication for digital communication to. You know, and the goal is to everyone on the world who wants to communicate privately. So we provide a messaging service to people who use the Signal app, which I'm sure many listeners in San Francisco are users of Signal. Um, you just, you know, you open your app, you send a meme or a message to your group text um, and, you know, directions to a party, whatever it is. It's very casual. It looks and feels like, you know, other dominant messaging services. But below the hood, it's very different. So we use end-to-end -end encryption so that our the contents of your messages are completely private. Signal can't read them. No one else can read them. We can't turn them over to law enforcement. They are truly private, and we, we have designed the technology um, such that that is 
you know, such that is very robust. And we go beyond that. So we encrypt metadata, which, of course, is really powerful. So, you know, things like we, we don't know who's talking to whom. We don't know profile information. We don't know your name. We don't know who is in the group that you're talking to. So as much information as we can keep private from ourselves and everyone else, we do so that they're, you know, because we yeah. believe that it's existentially important that a truly private means of communication exists in a world that is increasingly increasingly laced through with, you know, centralized corporate and state surveillance. And for those who don't remember the Snowden revelations that you referenced earlier from 2013, it was that metadata that actually was one of the key pieces of information that was being uh, scooped up by the government. Um, before we go to the break, do you can you sum up your vision for what you want to see happen for Signal, like in 30 seconds? My goal and what I believe will happen for Signal is that everyone in the world can pick up their phone or their device, easily connect with anyone else using Signal privately and securely. So it is a network effect of encryption where everyone is using Signal, everyone can talk to each other on Signal, and we have a truly robust means of actually private communication that can persist um, you know, in the face of a very you know, volatile and surveillance tech ecosystem. Yeah. At this wild moment in technology where it does seem like many things are coming crashing down, we're talking with Meredith Whitaker, president of the messaging platform Signal, nonprofit uh, that runs this end-to-end encrypted messaging service that we've been talking about. Do you worry about your privacy when you're messaging your friends and family? We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Did you work at big tech and you left the industry or changed what you do in the industry as a result of uh, ethical concerns. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with Meredith Whitaker. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Meredith Whitaker, president of the messaging platform Signal. I want to ask you about this moment in big tech. I mean, we've got share prices of all, pretty much all the big tech companies, not Apple, but the rest of them uh, are in the tank. Twitter's melting down. We've had this crypto bust we referenced earlier, uh, among many other things that are happening. 
Do you think this is a result of big tech critics like yourself succeeding? Or is that even, is that part of what's happening? Or are there other movements that you feel like have led to this moment? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I would not connect this with sort of, you know, fierce criticism suddenly buckles an industry, right? Like that's, you know, the industry has, you know, uh, yeah, the industry was fine for a number of years. Um, so I think, you know, I think this moment is, it, I'm not a wizard. I don't, you know, I'm not clairvoyant. It has been a lot to witness sort of the, you know, just how um, kind of flagrant the crypto meltdown has been, mm -hmm. um, you know, watching what's going on at Twitter. You know, I think, you know, I think the layoffs at a number of other companies, I saw something similar in 2008 when I was at Google, right, where, you know, the company could have afforded, has the cash on hand to, you know, retain the workforce, but, you know, moments of sort of economic halts or, you know, uncertainty are often moments where these companies can sort of justify breaking promises they mm -hmm. would not have felt comfortable breaking beforehand. So I don't, you know, it's not clear to me that this is sort of a, a referendum on the tech industry. It does seem clear to me that some of the, you know, the easy money and the kind of grift is, is kind mm. of being checked a bit. I think for a long time, there was sort of a VC cycle where, you know, you'd see a new, you know, a new startup on the market making outrageous claims, particularly around like AI, right? Mm -hmm. And you'd get, you know, VC investment, you know, series A, series B, you know, and, and even if the product itself weren't actually viable, even if the claims were overhyped, even if they were selling mind reading, but it's actually sort of, you know, logistic regression in the background and a bunch of like crappy trading data, right? Like you would still see kind of the people, you know, the investors and the executives cash out, right? Or they'd be able to get acquired before it was clear that the product like actually didn't do what it did or, you know, what have you. And I think there is, you know, there is some much needed skepticism that has been injected into, you know, the tech discourse in general. And I, you know, I'm hopeful that some of the sort of grifty, scammy nature of tech will will be checked. Now, you know, I don't think that has explanatory power to say, like, that's what's going on. Hmm. But I think that is, you know, that is, if, if I'm going to kind of make lemonade out <laughs> yeah. of this, I think that is one thing that I'm, I'm hopeful happens. And I'm particularly hopeful some of the, some of the like fairly outrageous hype around so-called AI and some of these sort of, you know, automated systems is, is checked in the process. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, a, a falling industry won't necessarily mean good things for people using these services, right? That they're, it seems like it could go in a lot of different directions as the company sort of just say, well, we need money, so we're going to do X, even though we said we weren't going to. Right. I mean, we saw that, you know, that is the imperative of shareholder corporations, right? You need every quarter, you got to report to your board that you have grown more, you know, you've gotten bigger than you were, which is, you know, again, that's, pretty hard if you're a multinational corporation with, you know, literally like more than half the world's population sort of using your services. Like where is there to grow? Right. And you need to increase, you know, increase revenue. And I think, you know, I saw this happen with Google where I feel like a lot of the commitments were sincere um, at the beginning. Right. There was, you know, I was on a flight to Beijing when Google announced that they were going to be pulling their servers off of mainland China, mainland China. And there was a lot of reasons for that, right, that weren't as noble as the reasons given. But one, you know, I think there was a sincere reason, like we didn't want to, you know, subject people in China to state censorship. Right. And there was, you know, a willingness to sort of you know, pull out of that market um, for that reason. 
right? And I think, you know, then fast forward 10 years later, and there's, you know, there is Project Dragonfly, which was a sort of um, a modified version of Google search that was going to be sending, you know, information directly to the Chinese government, right? Mm -hmm. What happened there? Was, did people change their minds? No, I don't think people changed their minds. I think the horizon got mm -hmm. much closer. And when it was, you know, you're searching around for like, where else can we grow? There's a massive market there. And it gets harder and harder to sort of leave that on the table for ethical reasons mm -hmm. when the imperative that's actually driving your company is profit and growth, mm -hmm. right? And if you leave that on the table for too long, you're going to get replaced by somebody who will, you know, not leave that on the table. So I think, you know, what I am, what I think we need to look much more carefully at is not kind of like, you know, is not the technology itself necessarily. It's, you know, why are we so comfortable with what can now be defined very clearly as sort of like critical infrastructure, people, you know, technological utilities being run, you know, by, you know, systems whose incentives are, are not always aligned with, you know, democracy or, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the public good writ large. Yeah. Man, so many things to talk about out of that. Um, China, your AI Now Institute that you co-founded with Kate Crawford. But I want to ask one more question about an, another big tech company. What about Apple? which really has seemed immune to basically every geopolitical, social, and intellectual trend. I mean, they still are producing massive amounts of phones. Uh, in China, they are really inside the Chinese economy in a way that few other uh, technology companies are. Um, they also have done quite well, even as other companies have really been in trouble. And they have, at least they would like to say, uh, better privacy policies um, than the other large uh, tech companies. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Apple is a hardware company as well. And I think controlling the stack at that level is something we need to really, you know, emphasize when we talk about sort of um, Apple's Apple's resilience here, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I don't, I'm not deep enough on the kind of like history of Apple in China, but I do know, you know, they have based protests, right? There, you know, are people who have, you know, push back on the labor conditions that, you know, Apple workers in China face. Um, and I think, you know, I'm sure that's something that Apple executives are very aware of. Now, how do you disentangle, you know, technological hardware production from, you know, China? Do you want to do that? You know, what are the, you know, what are the, the stakes there? I mean, that's a, that is a roiling debate right now in DC, good pay than bad. And I think it's something, you know, it's something that I think hasn't, you know, simply gone under the radar. Um, for Apple, although maybe they haven't faced sort of, you know, pecuniary consequences for it. Mm -hmm. um, on the privacy front, you know, I, they, you know, they have better privacy standards than a lot of competitors, specifically than a lot of like ad tech companies. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, if we can recall to a couple years ago when, you know, Apple announced that they were going to do what's called client side scanning, which is basically, you know, scanning the content of your device um, before it is, you know, say in, in the case of iMessage, scanning your messages before they are sent across on, you know, iMessage to, you know, detect for, you know, harmful content, right? Um, and this, you know, this caused an uproar, right? Because this is, you know, effectively breaks privacy, even if there are sort of, you know, ways in which that scanning can be encrypted, ultimately, it's, you know, kind of mass surveillance, right? And it is sort of allowing outside parties to determine what it, you know, what is possible and not possible to communicate, mm -hmm. right? And I, you know, I recall that incident because I think it's, 
you know, it's one of the issues with sort of trusting corporations that are, again, sort of driven by incentives of profit and growth to sort of, you know, remain, you know, keep their privacy promises, right? Because, you know, Apple had been pushed by a number of governments to sort of think about implementing something like this. You know, at some point, you know, they sort of caved and decided that they were going to propose a solution. Now, there was a lot of pushback and, you know, it's still kind of, you know, on tenuous ground. But I think, you know, the fact that every few years we all have to have like a white knuckle moment when whether it be like WhatsApp proposes a change of terms of service to break their promise and, you know, share data with Facebook or Apple proposes sort of, you know, mass surveillance on device to sort of, you know, police messaging content and other content. I think, you know, that is the issue we're really facing with all of these companies, right? Like, it's just a question of like, what amount of pressure will they withstand before they put their you know, incentives of profit and growth above, you know, keeping those promises, which can be very hard to keep. So it's, you know, I, I don't think I don't think Apple should es- escape scrutiny. I think a lot of their privacy promises are, you know, true in a very narrow technical sense, but sort of rely on things like, you know, on device learning and other things that are, you know, yeah, I, I'm not going to go into the technical details, yeah, but yeah. I think there are ways we can sort of pick these apart and sort of recognize that the power asymmetry that is so concerning with sort of the, you know, the mass, you know, kind of surveillance business model in general kind of remains intact, even if the technical mechanisms um, are, you know, a bit more sophisticated in Apple's sense. In so case. we've had some uh, listeners come in with some, some questions, uh, feedback and, and some pushback here. One is Stephen writes, how does Signal deal with the problem of criminals or terrorists using their system, given that, you, you know, what? All the things you've said about Signal being uh, end-to-end encrypted, you know, knowing as little as possible about what's happening on the platform. Yeah. Well, I think one way we do this is we think about this in the kind of design and product development phase, right? So we are not a social media app. We don't have, you know, broadcast capabilities like Telegram, you know, kind of channels that go to, you know, many thousands of people. Um, We think about, you know, limiting our group sizes and things like that that make it, you know, it's a very serviceable messaging app for people to communicate with each other, but it doesn't have the, you know, algorithmic amplification or the other, you know, ills that attend social media, right? So that we want to make it, you know, less attractive for that kind of, you know, one-to-many broadcasting um, or, you know, some of the, you know, some of the issues we've seen with misinformation and, and other harms on on larger platforms. Um, I think another answer to that is like, you know, we, you know, I, I personally don't think, you know, the, the tool that is used is not responsible for sort of the actions, right? We see a lot of really good people using Signal. We see, you know, I'm on you know, a number of neighborhood groups on Signal. Um, and I think there are, you know, there are many tools available for fighting, um, you know, bad people that don't involve, you know, breaking one of the few truly private means of communicating in a world that is, you know, persistently surveilled by centralized corporate and state actors. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that question is often posed in a way that sort of presupposes that there has to be a way to break privacy. And the only, you know, the solution for terrorism or, you know, whatever bad actions people do in the real world that are situated in real historical and social contexts that themselves are complex and need to be understood if we're actually going to sort of remedy these harms, these get reduced down to like, well, ultimately encryption is sort of to blame for terrorism or ultimately privacy must be broken because the only way 
to stop these harms is to, you know, persistently surveil everyone and ultimately, you know, apply some mode of social control that will like check these, you know, bad actions. And I think I want to push back really strongly on that because we have no evidence that, you know, persistent surveillance by powerful actors actually sort of prevents these harms, right? There's no historical evidence that, you know, that does anything but lead to, you know, often very, very harmful forms of social control that lock in existing inequalities in ways that are extraordinarily hard to uh, to change and to remedy. So I think, you know, if that is the sort of, you know, if that's the implication of this question, I think we need to have like a real honest conversation that like, no, this is not the solution for the problem. And actually the focus on, you know, on the tools and the technologies seems very frequently to be kind of a distraction from the real, you know, complex social and political and economic factors that are playing into, you know, things like terrorism or other other you know, bad actions by people. You know, uh, another listener, Zora, uh, tweets, uh, please comment on the FBI's claim that they monitor encrypted signal messages on iPhone. Seems like they're referencing uh, court documents from a recent gun trafficking case in, in New York. Um, I don't have those documents in front of me, but what I am certain they are referring to is they have, you know, installed some malware on someone's, you know, device similar to you know, sell bright and you can look at you know there's a there's a really good post by moxie who's um signals founder on kind of examining sell bright which is a you know effectively a malware system that will take over your device and give the person who is taking that device over the same access that you know you would have after you enter your password right so yes if you're able to sort of break someone's device if you break into someone's home you can rifle through their drawers you can do anything they can do in their home right but that doesn't mean that you know you know yeah. that doesn't mean that signal is insecure that means that they've gotten access to your device and they can also listen to your spotify playlists they can go through your camera roll they can do whatever you could do on your phone but no there is no way to monitor signal from outside of such a kind of breach such as that so mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that is a really important distinction. And I do think, you know, we have seen law enforcement in the past try to sort of make the conflation. And, you know, I would say so doubt in people's mind about, you know, signals, robust privacy and security. Mm-hmm. But no doubt is warranted. Yeah. Um, gosh, I remember writing about Celebrate back, you know, about 10 years ago. It was terrifying what yeah. could be. <laughs> if, if, you, if you had access, someone had access to your phone, the number of things that they can extract based on. Uh, on yeah. that software. Don't, um, don't let them in, have it. Yeah, Strong let's bring passwords. in a call. Uh, Rob in San Francisco. Hello. Hi, hey, Rob. You, you had a question about TikTok. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, well, TikTok, as well as the question that she kind of just answered as far as the bad guys using Signal to communicate with each other. But yeah, first TikTok, I mean, it seems like that's more Wild West in front of us when you take and you monetize or uh, put capitalism and tech together. Um, It just seems like a recipe for eventual more disasters happening. Um, But the, and so I wanted to hear her thoughts on, on where she thinks TikTok is going to eventually go. And the other question though was, when you describe signal as being encrypted, it's, it's not monitored. There's nobody is reading messages and everything. That's great. And I think that's, a great service to have, but when you say that it will never be used by law enforcement, if they had, say, a, um, you know, like a search warrant type thing, if you have 
communications that they know are happening over signal between criminal elements and they're trying to solve a case, shouldn't that be allowed to be handed over to the police to try to uh, catch some of these criminals that know that your service is as strong as it is? Yeah. Good questions, Rob. Um, let me let me tackle that last one, because, like, I think, you know, it was put in the subjunctive text tense, right? Like, shouldn't it be allowed? Like, I, I want to be really clear. Like, it is not possible technologically to offer actually strong privacy promises using, you know, what Signal does end-to-end encryption and other mechanisms for, you know, also protecting metadata. It is not possible to do that and both not do it, right? Either you collect the data and it is open for, you know, it is open for a signal to see, it is open for law enforcement, it is open for, you know, potentially other, you know, governments, law enforcement, you know, to, to you know, have access to or not. So encryption either works or it doesn't work. There's no way to sort of, you know, cast a magical spell and only let the good guys get in when they want to and not create significant vulnerabilities that would also endanger, you know, people's privacy and, and ultimately obviate the entire point of signal. Yeah. So there's a back door, possible. there's a back door, you're saying. If there's a back door, the back door is open for anyone who wants yeah. to find and open the back door. Yeah. It's like that's you know full stop. And you do, you know, I think this this discourse has been confused over the last 20 years when, you know, the period of time I've been in this, you know, in this industry. And there's there's constantly this sort of variety of magical thinking that's like, you know, but we'll just open it up only for the good guys. And you saw this with like 2015 and Apple and San Bernardino, right? This desire that we were going to sort of create some magic that does not, you know, exist outside of space and time and reality that would allow this to happen. It is not possible. We're talking with Meredith Whitaker, president of the messaging platform Signal, and we're taking some of your calls, too, about do you worry about privacy when you're messaging your friends and family, or have you gone full privacy nihilist? Do you work at big tech and you left the industry for ethical reasons? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, The number's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Annie writes in to say, as Margaret Atwood said recently, one of the first things a new fascistic regime does is compile a list of enemies. So, yes. I have often wondered about how my digital footprint might be used against me should such a regime succeed in the United States. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Meredith Whitaker, president of the messaging platform Signal, which is known for its very, very strong dedication to privacy, as you're hearing on this uh, show right now. 
You know, uh, Rob, our last caller, did have this question about TikTok, and you had been talking about China. And I am just curious, you know, while the rest of social media is, you know, a burning dumpster fire, TikTok is, uh, continues to take off, uh, being used by more and more people, and really seems kind of like the way that that app works is as powerful as the Facebook news feed at its peak in terms of being able to continue to draw attention and usage. Um, do you have more concerns about TikTok because its parent company is headquartered in China than you do about American headquartered uh, technology companies or not? Um, I, you know, I think I have concerns about any company that is beholden to a state government that is you know, in possession of the um, of the vast quantities of intimate information that a, you know, a Facebook or a TikTok or any other, you know, of these sort of surveillance tech companies collect, right? Am I more concerned that it's in China? I think, you know, I think there are certainly concerns. I I, I don't want to step directly into this question because it, you know, so often it spins out into like extraordinarily xenophobic framing mm-hmm. and this sort of great powers narrative that is, I think, oftentimes, you know, very oversimplified and also like fairly beneficial for U.S. companies like, you know, the social media giants in the U.S. who would love not to be competing with TikTok right now. Right. And who also fulfill, you know, subpoenas and warrants from the U.S. and other governments. So it's, you know, for me, the issue is that we have handed over the keys to vast dossiers of some of the most intimate information about us that can be used to make, you know, inferences about even more intimate information that, you know, is often often part of determining our ability to access resources and opportunity and sort of move through the world, right? Like that is a core problem, whether that company is based in China or the U.S. Um, I do think, you know, of course, there are sort of geopolitical issues, you know, that come up when you have, you know, two countries that sort of control the, the you know, technological utilities for the rest of the world and that those utilities, you know, require, you know, rely on sort of the extraction and creation of surveillance data. Yeah, that, you know, that is a huge issue. But I don't I don't feel comfortable putting this in sort of great powers conflicts like musty Cold War terms. Right. There's there's a lot more going on here. And I think we need to look at like, you know, we need to look at like who wins and who loses. Just get back to a fairly basic material analysis of, you know, what's happening here. Um, and sort of be cautious both about TikTok and about, you know, other U.S.-based companies that are also effectively doing the, you know, kind of based on the same sort of surveillance business model. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, Puni in Sacramento. Welcome. Uh, Hi. Hi. Uh, So, Meredith, you sort of answered most of the questions that I had in, uh, you know, how do the good guys how do the bad guys get caught if they use it? So basically the way you framed it is that it's like you can never prevent someone from like meeting one-on-one and planning something terrible, right? So that's the extent of, uh, and that's how one should be looking at it because as long as the technology does not allow for people to, uh, to survey, then it's okay. Is that, is that, am I understanding that right? Um, I will, I will answer that with an analogy I've used before, and I I like it because I'm clear, right? Because it's clear. Uh-huh. Um, you would not, you know, take a pen and go to the pen company, hand them this one specific pen, and say, "Tell me everything that was ever written with this pen." 
And you wouldn't do that because we all know that's not how pens work, right? That's not going to be possible, right? You would find another way to answer that question. You would, you know, find someone who had access to the document. You would do yada, you know, you would understand the context in which the writing was happening. You would, you know, understand the incentives that were driving the writing, whatever it is, right? You would look to other ways because you know that is not how pens work, right? Signal does not work that way. We don't collect any data. We don't have access to any data. And yes, we believe, I believe strongly that, you know, the a livable future is going to depend on having truly private means to communicate outside of the centralized state and corporate surveillance that right now you know, is threaded through the nervous system of our social and political institutions. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind oh, of... Oh, I, oh, go ahead, I, I sort of get what you're trying to say. I'm sorry, uh, but I think we are past that time of, you know... I, I mean, I, I strongly feel that we need to have the privacy because... Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, you know, what is there... But uh, how, then I guess maybe I missed the first part of your program. How are you all? I mean, the whole thing is this, the reason the surveillance happens is because it's getting monetized, right? By right. How, what the, is the business model there? The surveillance is the core of the business model, right? And well, let's talk about let's let's talk a little bit about the signals uh, business model. What what is it? How do you as as, as Puni's kind of uh, was saying? You know, if if you're not doing ads, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, we are relying on donations. So we have, you know, we're we're in a really lucky position. We have a, you know, we're we were um, given a, a generous loan, a generous investment by Brian Acton. So we have a, you know, solid foundation. One of the founders of WhatsApp. Yeah. Who um, and a and a staunch believer in privacy, um, and we are right now beginning to you know roll out kind of our our small donor model which is really where we want to go in the future. We want to be um, supported as much as possible by small donations from the people who use Signal. And we, you know, the, the, we are used by many millions of people around the world. So Signal has, you know, a pretty vast reach. And our theory here is that if, you know, even a small percentage of the people who rely on Signal, you know, kick in, you know, $3 a month, $5 a month, you know, $100 a year, um, we will be able to sustain um, and you know, continue to build signal in a way that is you know purely focused on privacy, not on you know not on uh, kind of infinite profits and growth. Now, I think the you know the the brass tacks of this are you know we're going to need to have a fairly robust um, you know we're we're going to need a lot of people to donate. You know, a small percentage of many millions is is a lot, so that's great. Um, but we do need people to donate because it is really expensive to develop, you know, high availability software like Signal. Um, it costs tens of millions of dollars a year. And that's a very, very lean budget for, you know, a, a you know, global um, service like Signal that is, you know, needs to be always available everywhere at all times. Uh, we have to pay for hosting. We have to pay for registration. We have to pay for staffing. Um, we have a, a lot of forever expenses and our expenses are really low compared to our competitors. So, you know, one of the things I think it's important to emphasize about the business model that, you know, Signal is is shaping and, you know, working to move forward is that a lot of the cost to develop software has been, you know, hidden behind the surveillance business model. So we've gotten used to, quote unquote, free products from, you know, email mm-hmm. to social mm-hmm. media, et cetera. Um, 
that often came packaged with a narrative that, you know, these products represent, you know, a great leap forward, a scientific innovation, right? Um, and that what we were seeing, you know, why we were suddenly able to access all of these, you know, these digital services and platforms was that people sort of figured out the way to, you know, the, the, the way to build them. You know, this was a, a new kind of, you know, a new era in science and technology um, when, you know, yes, there was a lot of innovation, a lot of really smart people working on these services. But, you know, what actually happened was the commercialization of, you know, networked infrastructure, the privatization of, you know, NSFNet, and then the growth of the internet business model, some trial and error. And then people, you know, settled on this surveillance business model in which you collect and create tons and tons of data about people. You, you know, form profiles on them, and then you sell access to those folks to advertisers. And that's, you know, that is the business model that built tech. That is the ecosystem within which Signal operates. And that is what, you know, funds these quote unquote right. free products that you know cost millions and millions of dollars a year to create and maintain. Um and we, you know, and Signal is looking to do that otherwise, to actually be funded by the people who, you know, care about Signal, care about privacy and rely on us. Two more questions from listeners on Signal as a service itself. Um, so we talked about the business model a little bit. Kenichi tweets, I recently stopped using Signal because they're going to stop sending and receiving SMS. Those are text messages. I can't convince all my friends to use Signal and only Signal. Privacy is good, but so is convenience. Yeah. I mean, the network effect, which is, you know, the term for, you know, when your friends use something, it's easier to use, particularly communication services, is very real. Right. And I think, you know, the decision to, well, let me back up. Right. So I'm not sure everyone knows this. On Android devices, people who use Signal until, you know, could opt to have Signal be your default messenger. And that means it would receive Signal messages and Signal messages are private and encrypted with all the qualities we've discussed on this show. And it could receive SMS messages. And SMS messages is sort of SMS is the protocol um, that you know sends sort of text messages. And SMS messages are not private. They are sent in the clear, which means your telecom company or anyone sort of peeking into your network traffic can see what you're saying, right? So already, that is sort of a compromise for Signal, right? And and what is you know wh why are people upset about it? Because it meant you could text people who didn't use Signal and kind of you know just stay within the Signal app. But, you know, the ecosystem has changed a lot in the 10 years since, you know, Signal first launched, you know, the Android version that, that had SMS support. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of reasons why we finally made the decision to drop it. One of them being that SMS is not widely used outside of the U.S. and a couple of other Western countries. Um, another reason is that SMS is extremely expensive. So we were getting you know, reports from folks in, you know, often in disinvested regions who thought they were sending signal messages, who suddenly got a huge bill because what they were doing was actually sending SMS messages. Mm -hmm. um, we also think there are, you know, there are real privacy concerns with sort of mixing the two. We had a lot of folks who were just, you know, we tried to differentiate this in the interface, but a lot of folks were confused, right? They went to signal to send signal messages. They didn't realize that they were sending messages in the clear, which is, you know, just not something that was comfortable for us. And finally, there's, you know, and this is this gets into some of the technical weeds, but, you know, Google is pushing another standard, not SMS. It's called RCS. And that meant that, you know, for Android devices, starting in 2019, it became increasingly difficult to sort of meet the Play Store guidelines to be a third party SMS app. Mm. So, you know, we were almost kicked out of the Play Store in 2019. It was by the skin of our teeth that we were able to even, you know, continue being a 
a you know third party SMS app, and that has only gotten more difficult. And at mm-hmm. this point, there is no API that would allow us to integrate RCS. So it's sort of you know this is a there's mm-hmm. all there's of these reasons, reasons these yeah. are real reasons that we took into consideration. And there's just you know when we look at the horizon, it's you know SMS is a degrading protocol. We don't have a way to interoperate with RCS. SMS is an expensive protocol in most of the world. It is inconvenient in most of the world. And fundamentally, it is insecure. So that's, you know, those are the panoply of reasons. That There's your answer, Kenichi. Uh, I'm sorry. It doesn't sound like they're going back. No. Um, let's uh, zoom back out a little bit here. Uh, Simone in Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Um, my name is Simone. Pronouns are she, her. Thanks for this conversation. And thanks for having me on. Um, Huge fan of form. So anyway, so I'm a machine learning engineer at one of the U.S.'s largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organizations. Um, so I kind of want to make a statement on that and kind of follow up with the question. So based on my experience, I can um, I can kind of say that there's still capitalization of the work that nonprofits are doing. Um, so more concretely, what this might look like is that the top leadership might pursue like these really aggressive goals that sound nice, but they end up being so aggressive. And what happens is that it promotes a toxic culture within the organization to meet them. And they don't even tackle the heart of the problem that um, the organization is purportedly trying to solve. So the suspicion is that like the leadership is incentivized to do this because the goals sound nice and it ends up bringing in donations. So that brings me to my question. Like a lot of like what you all mentioned in the, uh, beginning of the episode are like leadership level decisions on how like nonprofits and organizations can be structured to align themselves ethically. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, like, what can ethically minded people who are not in leadership roles do to kind of like force or push their organization to move in the right direction? What a good question, Simone. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't speak for your specific context, Simone, and I don't, you know, I I hesitate to give sort of generalizable advice, but I think, you know, there is always, there's always labor organizing. That is the classic, you know, that is the classic palliative for, you know, folks who are not in leadership to, you know, speak um, and sort of gain a voice and gain some power in those decisions. Um, I think there is, you know, there is sort of domain level kind of interventions. So I don't know, I don't know the space of um, kind of, suicide prevention. I don't I don't know the space you're in, but I'm sure there are folks who are, you know, engaged in those issues who could potentially be influential. Um, and I think, you know, I think, you know, I, I think sort of getting to the heart of, you know, some of the question like, you know, nonprofit is not a one stop palliative to ensure ethical conduct. And, you know, in Signal's case, that is, you know, that's also why we make our code open source. That's why we, you know, we, you know, try to be extremely honest and clear about our, you know, technological and and sort of organizational decisions um, and, you know, like communicate out with the signal community. I think we, you know, we try to hold ourselves to extremely high standards and ensure that we're not asking anyone to take our word for it, you know, where possible, that we are actually sort of, you know, allowing people to say scrutinize our code or, you know, hosting, you know, forum discussions where people can, you know, we can really unpack some of the reasoning behind decisions, you know, the, the SMS decision being being a really, you know, a, a recent example. So, you know, I think it's, you know, I think we want to 
as Signal be held accountable and make sure that we are putting structures in, in place for accountability. Um, and again, I can't really speak to your specific context, but I think there, are, you know, there are a lot of ways yeah. to, um, you know, there are a lot of ways to kind of push, push bad leadership yeah. or push leadership in ethical directions. Um, Two last um, meaty comments here. Uh, I'll give you a chance to respond. Subi writes, love Meredith's commitment and ethical integrity. I'm so glad she's using the term metastasize to describe the tech industry's goal of incessant growth. I remember listening to a speech President Obama was giving about the economy and becoming distressed when he kept describing the expectation of constant economic growth. I kept thinking that such a thing was unnatural and cancer-like. I wish there were more thinkers like Meredith helming important businesses. MB writes, Meredith Whitaker's explanation of how Signal addresses people using it for criminal purposes ticked me off. I'm currently a Signal user and I live in the Bay Area and I'm a liberal, but listening to this morning's forum makes me want to stop using the app. I'm upset with anyone who argues privacy above all. There are really scary criminals out there and I want police to have access to messages if something is being planned or already went down if needed. We've got about 30 seconds. Do you want to uh, try and address that last pushback? Um, I mean, I feel like I addressed it, right? Like, there are other levers law enforcement has um, that don't fundamentally preclude privacy for everyone. You know, I think, you know, again, you wouldn't go to a pen company and say, like, tell me what this pen wrote. You would find other methods. And you can't go to Signal and say, you know, tell us who wrote what. You know, I, I think it's also not every government is the U.S. government. Not every request is in good faith. And we have you know, deep histories persistent across the globe of what happens when, you know, let's say regimes with authoritarian tendencies gain access to the levers of mass surveillance. But we have never seen that happen at the scale of surveillance we have now. So I just, you know, I think we need to put a damper on some of the the implicit optimism behind comments like that. We've been talking with Meredith Whitaker, president of the messaging platform Signal. Thank you so much for joining us. This Hour of Form is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, Jennifer Ng, and Catherine Monahan. Marlena Jackson Rotondos, our engagement producer, Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers, Danny Bringer. Our interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis is our senior producer. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tovin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thanks again to Meredith Whitaker. Stay tuned for another Hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.